Alright, what is good everyone? It's your host Fuad, back at it with another banger episode of Shoot Your Shot. We just ended the Eastern and Western Conference semis as of this recording. I have a lot I want to get into and cover today for you guys across the landscape of the NBA. So without further ado, let's get right into the news. So before I touch on the playoffs, which is going to take the majority of today's episode, I actually want to touch on the NBA's awards. So recently, the NBA announced their first and second third teams along with their all-defensive teams. So let's break down the list. You got your NBA Kia 2022-2023 first team that goes to Giannis, Jason Tatum, Joel Embiid, Shai Gilgis-Alexander, and Luka Doncic. You got the second team with Butler, Brown, Jokic, Donovan Mitchell, and Steph Curry. And you got the third team with Julius Randle, LeBron James, Sabonis, De'Aaron Fox, and Damian Lillard. So, not much that's actually wrong with this list. I think a few tweaks should have been made if it was me, but obviously it's not. To dive deep into this list, though, I honestly think Steph should have been first team, not SGA, because Steph's team had a way better record, and he also just had a better season, in my opinion. SGA definitely showed out with his points per game. However, Steph had a better all-around season, and his team was a higher seed, so I think he should have made the first team, not the second team. Uh, the others are pretty much warranted. Honestly, I think that Julius Randle is a bit overrated because he made the third team. He, he was an all-star this year. And then you guys saw how he approached the entire playoffs. It was pretty much literally just Jalen Brunson carrying the entire time. Julius Randle barely did anything. He had horrible performances, as we're going to get into later this episode. However, honestly, I think he's a little bit too hyped up because when it matters the most, he ends up disappearing most of the time. So I think Randall is getting way too many flowers. This selection is going to be able to affect his contract. So he's going to be able to get paid more off of this. And obviously, I don't condone anybody not getting paid. But at the same time, I don't think he's worth his contract. I think... The Knicks' ceiling is Randall's ceiling, and if you guys, which are Knicks fans, you guys want to end up going a little bit later in the playoffs or just make it further out, even though the season was deemed a success, honestly, you guys should get rid of Randall and just try to find a better wing that complements Jalen Brunson's style of play a little bit more. That way, you're going to end up actually depending on these people when it matters the most rather than shying away from them and having them just shoot random step back threes that barely end up making the basket so honestly that's just my opinion I don't think Randall should have gotten it but I think it should have went to somebody like Kevin Durant or Paul George even though they missed a lot more games the CBA is not in contention for this year because they agreed on it as of this season so it's going to take effect starting next season 
So players with less than 65 games played are actually not going to be able to qualify for honors like these, such as All-NBA um, and various other awards. And uh, I also want to touch on how LeBron James is actually the only player in the NBA's entire history to make an all-NBA team in his ripe 20th season. Um, I think we should appreciate LeBron James's style of play a lot more. Even though he gets a lot of criticism, people should just slow down when it comes to criticizing LeBron James and actually enjoy the greatness he's displaying in front of us because this style of play at this time in somebody's life honestly is a first. Uh, this guy is taking the word longevity to a whole new level. Nobody in their 20th season approaching 39 years old can drop 30 points in a closeout game versus the defending champions. Honestly, like I said, I want to get into the whole playoff outlook a little bit later, but I just need to defend LeBron James because the amount of slander this guy gets is beyond me. I don't understand why people keep criticizing him when he is simply one of the GOATs and one of the greatest players to ever lace up his shoes. People keep nitpicking about small things and hating when he literally owns half the records in today's NBA. So let's move on to the all NBA defense team. So just to go over the list here for you guys, we got the first team with Alex Caruso, Drew Holiday, Jaron Jackson Jr., Brooke Lopez, and Evan Mobley. And then we got the second team with Bam Adebayo, OG Ananobi, Dylan Brooks. Yeah, he ended up making a team. He made the NBA second team, all defense, Dylan Brooks, who is now a teamless, uh, I should add, and Draymond Green and Derek White. So honestly, this list I have a little bit more issues with than the all-NBA team because... OG Ananobi is definitely regarded as one of the best defensive players in today's league. And unfortunately, because he's on the Raptors, I think that goes unnoticed a lot of the times. He literally was the sec he led the league in steals for most of the season, but then Jimmy Butler, who is also not on this list, edged him out for this first spot. And then that's not just to mention how they're good at steals per game, right? Because when you have Jimmy Butler and OG Ananobi, you got those two guys guarding your best player on the opposing team. So it's not just the fact that, oh, he's picking up steals. These two wings are often tasked with literally guarding the best player on the opposition. So that has everything to do from on-ball defense, defensive IQ, deflections, you name it, I think Jimmy Butler doesn't deserve All-NBA First Team or OG Ananobi. That's just really hard for me to believe because they're honestly dubbed as such good two-way players in today's NBA that I, I think they should have made at least the first team, both of them, because they're simply two of the best defenders in the entire NBA. Like When you think the best defender in the whole league you're probably going to think of Jimmy Butler or Miles Bridges. Which brings me to my next point. Miles Bridges was one of the hugest snubs in this year's All-NBA defensive team. Like, the man played most of the games, so you can't use the games missed as an excuse. He also did really, really well when being guarded by the opposition's best player. So, 
The fact that he simply did not make an all-defensive team is baffling to me because he had the stats, he had everything that you needed to do to basically get recognized at that level, but he still got snubbed, even though they got he was involved in that massive blockbuster trade, deadline trade, with um, Kevin Durant being traded to the Suns. Um, honestly, I think that was one of the biggest snubs. If you want me to pick one of these uh, three people, I would probably pick Bridges because even though his stat lines don't really show it as much as OG and Jimmy Butler, you got teams with the opposing's best player literally just changing up their game plan when we're, when they're being guarded by Miles Bridges because he affects the game and influences it at such a high level when he's guarding the opposition's best player and often holds them to a subpar performance. Um, we also have to discuss the Dylan Briggs selection because honestly, um, the fact that you guys, like the NBA's voting crew, picked Dylan Brooks and Bam Adebayo over players like Jimmy Butler, OG Ananobi, Miles Bridges, even Marcus Smart, and that's coming from like a Boston Celtics, you know, non-enthusiast. I don't think, uh, even though Marcus Smart won the NBA's Hustle of the Year award, I think he alone, even with his flopping, deserves a spot on the NBA's all-defensive team when you're comparing him to players like Dylan Brooks and Bam Adebayo, even people like Evan Mobley, honestly, not not to take away anything from Bam Adebayo and Evan Mobley, but when it comes to pure defensive prowess, we saw how Evan Mobley crumbled in the playoffs. Him and Jared Allen were not able to grab any rebounds against a team that was literally smaller than them. So it's tough to think that they qualify in the regular season to such a high-honored award and highly coveted place to be for a player as as young as Evan Mobley, especially. However, um, that's not to take away from anything like them. Like I said, I just simply think that there was better candidates for that award because it's such a highly coveted honor that players often go out of their way to try to achieve because it ends up adding a lot more incentives to their contracts and just being a more recognized and respected player on that end of the floor across the NBA. So that's my little spiel about the NBA's all uh, all first, all, all defensive teams. Um, not much to look at. Uh, it was pretty much a good list like I mentioned. However, the all-defensive team needs a little bit of tweaking when it comes to especially Dylan Brooks. Like, I'll give it to Bam and Evan Mobley, but honestly, I do not think Dylan Brooks should have made an all-NBA team, given by the fact that he's currently teamless. Nobody wants to pick him up. Everybody's seeing all the memes on social media about him joining the Shanghai Sharks. So honestly, I think he should start learning Chinese like every other post on social media is stating because... Even with his second NBA all-defensive team selection, I doubt he's going to get picked up by another team simply because they don't want to put up with his antics, with his off-court drama, and what comes out of his mouth during the post-game press because it's simply too much to have on a team's plate. Okay, so now that we have that out of the way, I'd like to discuss the actual playoffs. So, as everybody knows, 
We've been in for a hell of a treat this year because the NBA playoffs have been insurmountable. They've been an amazing, fun time, and pleasure to watch and report to you guys. And let me just start breaking it down. So, starting with the hottest series in the NBA playoffs so far, which is now over, we got the Lakers versus the Warriors. Honestly, man, this series was insane. We got everyone dubbing it Steph versus LeBron when it was actually a lot more deeper than that. We got AD holding down the fort like he's a defensive wizard. He's just like basically blocking everybody at all times. Um, he's just a very, very defensive anchor when it comes to the paint. He doesn't let anybody do anything. And then on top of that, I'm pretty sure everyone saw the clip of him holding Steph Curry to that last shot. It wasn't really giving him any room to play with. He was holding him down all the way. However, let's get back to discussing the series. So game four, you got Curry going for a triple-double. He had 31, 10, and 14. Pretty sure he had over 30 points in every game this series. He was pretty much the only person that showed up. He had multiple four-point plays with threes and an and one. He was just pretty much scorching the entire Lakers, even though he shot bad in his last few games. I think he was the only one that actually ended up showing up. However, he was going to win game four with his performance and triple-double, but then people like Clay just only had nine points on three for 11 shooting, just like he did three for 18 in the last game, six, which was honestly just not allowed, man. Um, you can't start off one for seven in a potential closeout game like Clay did in game six. But honestly, I think if they would have won game four, it might have went to seven games. However, um, everybody's dubbing that game as the Lonnie Walker game, as they should, because he had all his 15 points in the fourth quarter, and he either, even broke Curry's ankles on a his only miss. So he went four for five. And his only miss was actually when he broke Curry and shot an air ball. So um, many people missed that because nobody wants to see an air ball. But Lonnie Walker was locked in and he earned himself a lot more minutes going forward for this series as he did in Game 6. He was one of the people off the bench that gave the Lakers a spark plug. And he just basically never looked back after his Game 4 performance. So when you go back to Game 5... Um, the Warriors came out firing pretty much. They had a seven to seventeen to five run, but the Lakers fought to get back in it. However, by the time we reached halftime, there was a sixteen to five run again to end the half for the Warriors. So honestly, man, you know how the NBA is. It's a game of runs. You got teams just going on insane runs where the other team can't buy a bucket, and then. For some reason, you call a timeout, the momentum shifts, and it becomes the other way around. Game 5 was the last the Warriors actually did something this series because they were back at home, they were fighting to stay in it, and with their Warriors DNA and championship prowess, I'm pretty sure everyone chose them to win that game, including myself. However, what everybody failed to see was that the Lakers were not going to bow down in Game 6. And that's exactly what they did. The Warriors came out super flat. Curry was shooting 0 for 3 to start from 3. And as I mentioned earlier, Clay was 1 for 7 and ended the game at 3 for 18 shooting, which is absolutely abysmal in a potential closeout game. Uh, Wiggins didn't really help either. Uh, neither did Draymond Green. 
it was pretty much Steph versus everybody else. Um, I honestly don't really want to waste too much time talking about Jordan Poole because I think the Warriors front office just fumbled their bag for the next four years on a player that's not even worth nearly as much as they they chose to pay Jordan Poole because even though he had a good playoff run when they won the finals, I think the Warriors were pretty much just on cloud nine and wanted to pay the future young next generation, if you will, of Warriors players. However, I think they committed too much too quick to Jordan Poole, which pretty much is swallowing a lot of their cap space going into the offseason. So a lot more questions are arising, such as if Draymond Green is ever going to come back because he's on an expiring deal with a player option for about $27 million for the next season, which is definitely going to put the Warriors in a hefty luxury tax. So uh, as uh, especially as Poole's contract starts to kick in, uh, next season so honestly they have a lot of decisions to make but going back to that game six man curry was six for 28 before that game six on threes so he tried his best to fight to get back in it but the way the lakers covered him pretty much just not not giving him any room on screens to operate and honestly divincenzo was pretty much the only warrior that chose to show up much like how we're gonna get into later when Cameron Payne decided to go absolutely nuclear in the Suns' game six elimination as well when Booker had his only bad game which pretty much led to Monty Williams being fired as we're gonna discuss later in this episode however honestly going back to this game six LeBron deserves a lot of credit because Going into this very game six, he had 16 consecutive home wins with a chance to clinch the playoff series. So let me break that down for you guys. So pretty much every time LeBron was at home with a potential chance to clinch a playoff series, he has won the 16 last consecutive chances he's had to do so. So honestly, the stats were in the Lakers' favor. However, Um, I chose to go with the Warriors championship DNA, even though they were a smaller team. I thought people or players like Klay Thompson and Andrew Wiggins, even maybe Jordan Poole were going to step up, but we saw the spark plug off the bench being DiVincenzo, and that was pretty much it. Curry had to take about 30 shots to score 31 points, so... Even though he didn't play bad, he was still 4 for 14 from 3. Clay was 2 for 12. It's safe to say that you live and die by the 3 ball. And the Warriors definitely chose to go that route since they were a lot smaller and they couldn't get past AD in the paint. However, I also think that the Warriors had a lot more of a gruesome series up to that point of that game 6. Because I think Memphis gave the Lakers a hard time. But when you look at the Kings versus the Warriors, the Warriors were pretty much like dead after that series. They were super tired, especially because their stars are a lot older. They didn't have as much rest after that game seven. They had to play the following. uh, They only had one rest day, so they had to play the following day after that. Whereas the Lakers had a few days to rest in between that series. So honestly, um, I think Steph Curry gave it his best shot. Uh, everyone's paying him his respects like he deserves. He's a four-time NBA champ, finals MVP, the league leader in three points made and in the playoffs. So honestly, um, he was a class act by 
giving him, uh, giving Lonnie Walker in Game Four his jersey that had him signed to keep grinding, and the fact that a little joke at the bottom that he was never going to forgive him for Game Four because if it wasn't for Lonnie Walker, then the the Warriors would have won that game. So that tells you that much about Steph's character and how much of a good person he is in general. Um, he's very humble and down to earth. Other um, uh, unlike a lot of other players, unfortunately, in today's NBA. Um, he never calls himself like one of the goats or anything like that, even though he 100% is. Uh, you even got players like LeBron calling themselves the goat after they came back against the Warriors, actually, from a 3-1 deficit in the 2016 playoffs. Um, I'm not here to judge. I'm just giving you guys the context so you guys are aware of uh, how players view themselves after certain performances. We got Steph Curry that pretty much carried the entire Warriors up to a Game 6 where the Lakers who are now in the Western Conference Finals who actually uh, signed his jersey and gave it to the guy who beat him versus players uh, saying that they're humbly the best player in the world actually um, after dropping 5 for 21. Um, yeah, I'm not going to say much more about that. So yeah um the lakers are currently the second seventh seed since 1984 when the nba began tra uh, tracking seeding to reach the conference finals so uh we got a lot of underdog stories which makes part of this playoff run a pleasure to report from and actually just uh super enjoyable to watch you know because you got these underdogs which is basically jimmy butler because he's been in that position his entire career where people just don't treat him as the star he actually is. And uh, he's also one of the other humble players that doesn't actually call himself out when he has a good performance. He's super humble and he just lets the team take the praise that it deserves rather than him taking his individual flowers, which everyone should be giving him. So you got um, the Heat, which is an 8th seed, reaching the conference finals in the East, and you got the Lakers, a 7th seed, which is reaching the conference finals in the West. So I'm super intrigued to see how that's going to pan out, because honestly, let's be real, I think the top seeds, which is Boston and Denver, have a lot of a leg up when it comes to matching up against those teams I just discussed. However, only time will tell. We'll see what happens. So... Um, I also want to discuss the Suns versus Nuggets, as I alluded to earlier. Um, honestly, man, we have to give Jokic his respect because he's the only player in playoff history to pretty much average 40, 10, and 10, which sounds insane. That's like 2K stats. You, that, you're basically having like a 40-point triple-double across the playoffs where teams actually lock in versus just play you for the hell of playing. So, yeah, honestly, I think Jokic is putting himself on the map. Uh, unlike Joel Embiid did uh, with his performance right now, which we're going to get into after discussing this series, I think Joel Embiid is just a huge uh, flopper. He just settles for way too many, like, close 10-foot shots instead of asserting his dominance. And honestly, I think he falls, like, once a minute when he's on the floor, maybe even more. And um, yeah, I just don't really like people who play like that. I think they try to use the rules to their advantage a lot more when like at seven feet, why are you, why is your top priority to get fouled and bait people to foul you so you can end up taking free throws instead of just asserting your will and dominance when you're a 300 pound seven footer 
and then you're being guarded by a 6'9", 36-year-old on the opposition's Boston Celtics. So, you know, like, I just, I, I don't really think his mindset's in the right place, which basically confirms why he got kicked out of the second round of the playoffs pretty much every single time they made a run. So you can clearly tell it wasn't Ben Simmons. They have um, James Harden, who's a shell of himself in today's age, but I don't think it was like the personnel on the Philadelphia 76ers teams in the past that ended up not giving them the ability to reach further than the second round. I think it's their actual star, which is Joel Embiid. But uh, that's for the next series we're going to discuss. Sorry to get off this tangent. It's just the Sixers just got knocked out by uh, by the Boston Celtics. And I did not see Joel Embiid having like an MVP performance in that game, which is kind of annoying. But talking against the guy who was going to steal that MVP award from him, Jokic going absolutely insane, averaging 40, 10, and 10, it just makes you think out loud and want to compare these two, even though they're not, they have very different play styles, so I wouldn't say they're comparable. However, they are the same position. Like, I think Philly can do a lot of a better job by not making Embiid ISO on top of every possession and have the offense run through him a little bit more rather than the pick and roll with Harden. Whereas you can see Jokic pretty much getting all of his players involved with off-ball actions, cuts, and uh, screen actions that they run for them with the dribble handoffs, and pretty much everything offensive-related runs through Jokic, and he sets up various people while maintaining that edge of being aggressive, having his stat line, which is pretty much averaging 40, 10, and 10 across that series. So... Yeah, um, honestly, there's not much to discuss when it comes to the Suns. They just fired uh, the two-time coach of the year, Monty Williams, when I don't really think it was a coaching like scruffle that ended up them losing back-to-back in playoffs in 2021 and 20, er, sorry, in 2022 and 2023. They lost back-to-back in closeout games by 25 points or more. So um, I don't think that was a coaching issue. I think it was mostly that they were extremely top-heavy and only dependent on two players that pretty much ran all of their offense for them, especially when you have your best facilitator, who's uh, now 38, um, almost 39, and Chris Paul, being out. So he was trying really hard on defense in their uh, first-round matchup. Like, you saw him die for lose balls, uh, try to run back on defense to get the steal every time. So you can like kind of sense that vintage Chris Paul was trying to show up for these playoffs. But unfortunately, when he sat out, uh, you had Devin Booker having to be your go-to scorer, your facilitator, uh, playing good defense. So it's simply too much to ask of one player. And then KD started the game six, which was the closeout game that the Nuggets played them. One for ten. So honestly, I don't really see people like that winning playoff series when you're just extremely top heavy and dependent on two players having good performances. So you saw, um, I think uh, Devin Booker ended that game like four for thirteen or something like that, and then KD got his uh, points at the end, but his slow start could not be wavered off by uh, scorching hot Denver Nuggets, you know. 
You got KCP coming out for six for seven in the first quarter. He basically couldn't miss. Um, you got KD having horrible starts. He basically had this one possession where he tipped it in his own basket on an attempted block for a pass. So that pretty much sums up the 30-point half, which was the quietest arena in the NBA playoffs this season and basically a worse reenactment of last year's playoffs. I think the Phoenix Suns are cursed. I don't really think they have what it takes to take it this far with the current personnel. So honestly, they need to look into just like trading everybody away except for KD and Booker and giving them a much well-versed roster that they can actually operate with rather than being extremely top-heavy on two individual players' performances every time. So you got the Suns going into the offseason with a lot to think about. <clears throat> they don't have a coach. And I think everyone's on the trade block. You got people even saying Chris Paul is going to get traded to get a bunch of quality role players because he has a non-guaranteed contract going into his last year of un being under contract. So honestly, I don't know how much, how many more years Chris Paul wants to try to play to compete for a ring. I thought his best chance was against the Bucks in 2021. But honestly... You saw how they approached that. Um, you got two pivotal games where Booker and Chris Paul on separate occasions fumbled the ball for a turnover for the Bucks to pretty much sum it up. And uh, you got, I don't know if you guys remember, but there was that legendary lob from Drew Holiday to Giannis where he basically just stood there with his most muscular pose after draining that lob on top of CP's head when he tried to push him for that foul, which basically just cemented that series. Um, yeah, so I just want to leave off the Suns Nuggets series by saying that they progressively had the third and fourth worst beatdown in the NBA's playoffs history in back-to-back -back seasons in closeout games. So that's definitely not a good place to be when you want to actually contend for the title. <laughs> so they have a lot to think about going into their offseason. I think they're going to make a lot of new moves because of their new uh, owner, Matt Ishba, wanting to win so bad. So he has uh, an aging KD, which is going into 35 years old, and a star in his prime as Booker, which honestly, like I said in my previous episodes, pretty much cemented himself as one of the top players in today's game by having an insane playoff run with an insane efficiency. Pretty much tells you how he's um, honestly almost used to being guarded the way he is while being the only star on the team. So when you pretty much have KD on the other side or on the weak side of the court so he can unlock that much more room to operate with, which unlocked his true potential and just pretty much left it all out on the floor. So nothing but respect. Um, honestly, I'm going to come out and say that I wasn't much of a Devin Booker fan before this because I didn't like how he carried himself off the court. He had a lot of things that was released uh, basically saying how he wasn't super um, attentive of fans and just not the most respectful superstar when it came to interacting with the people who loved him. So <clears throat> that made me view him as a little bit less of a superstar when it comes to just being a, a good human being. However, um, after cementing himself this playoff run, honestly, you don't have to be nice if you're that good because there's like a level, there's levels to it, and he pretty much just separated himself onto a whole brand new echelon of superstardom given how he 
pretty much averaged the most uh, points in this entire playoff run. I believe he ended up at around 34 points a game because of his last performance. But that's still um, on top of the entire league in the playoffs. And uh, he played the game the right way. He had a game with 12 assists when Chris Paul sat out. So honestly, um, I hope you get to work on interacting with fans outside of the game so you're just a little bit of a nicer person. But when it comes to your basketball prowess, man, respect, you earned it. Um, you're one of the best players in today's league, and that goes without saying. So um, I just want to get into the Knicks versus Heat real quick before I cover the last series, which is Celtics versus 76ers. And then I'll end off by uh, updated predictions for the rest of the playoffs since I got most of them wrong. I had the Warriors coming out of the West, so obviously that's not happening anymore. So just real quick, uh, I want to give Jalen Brunson his flowers. He is pretty much the only guy that showed up for the entire New York Knicks. He is the second Knicks player in... Uh, NBA history to have four plus consecutive games in a playoff series with more than 30 points and he ended his last with a historic 41 point performance but unfortunately it was not enough for him to close out the heat to have them go back to a game seven. He was astronomical. He pretty much put the entire team on his back. He was historic like no more words honestly um I'm, I, I feel bad for Jalen Brunson because he didn't get his flowers outside of his contract like you know when when you're making that much money as an NBA star you start shooting for more NBA honors to add to your toolkit and your trophy case right but the problem is that his teammate Julius Randle, as you guys saw in the beginning of the episode, he pretty much just took all of that from him. And I think it's because he's just a little bit taller and has more shot attempts at the end of the day, right? So, like, it's easier for him to play like that. And then, unfortunately, there's a lot of recency bias when it comes to being picked for NBA awards, especially, like, as an all-star reserve. Um, you heard that rumor where a lot of the coaches ask if he was simply an all-star before then. Jalen Brunson deserves a lot more of the shout-outs and praise that ended up going to Julius Randle. However, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. You got him basically not winning anything when Julius Randle was an all-star and made an all-NBA team. So I don't really agree with that at the end of the day, but honestly, I think Jalen Brunson definitely put himself on the map for people to realize so he definitely has a lot more to look forward to coming into the next season. But he definitely did his best to try to will the Knicks as far as he possibly could. However, unfortunately, the Heat being such a well-balanced roster around Jimmy Butler, which is kind of uh, counterintuitive and a little bit oxymoronic, because when you look at the Heat squad individually, they're not that good um, individual players. However, when they play around Jimmy Butler as a unit, given that Heat culture, they are an eighth seed that ends up making it to the Eastern Conference Finals. So some stats about that is that they're actually only the second ever eighth seed to reach the Conference Finals, and um, hopefully they're aiming to be the second to actually reach the Finals, uh, which is ironically the 1997-98 Knicks being the other, so that's uh, some NBA history for you. 
Um, now, pretty much the question is whether Jimmy is going to face the Heat or the Celtics, which was answered earlier today. Um, as we're going to get into a little bit later, I honestly think uh, Philly shot themselves in the foot, but I'm going to get into that in about a few minutes. Um, I just want to discuss Lowry's performance as well because he's my grope, uh, which uh, for you who don't know, is basically the greatest Raptor of all time. Um, being that he played for my Toronto Raptors the nine seasons that he did. He's honestly my favorite player, which is uh, pretty much not as popular as most other people think because most people don't really know who he is until he won the championship in 2019. So he's very low-key. He's about 37 years old right now, and uh, he's still playing really important minutes for the Miami Heat, which are currently... Um, in the Eastern Conference Finals for, I think, the third time in the last four or five seasons. So even though they were an eighth seed, their championship DNA with Kyle Lowry and Kevin Love, you can pretty much see that being contagious across the entirety of the rest of the team. And Jimmy Butler's just style of play, which pretty much just translates to the entire rest of the team. So when you look at Lowry's stats that game, they're nothing that impressive, right? You got 11 points, 4 rebounds, 9 assists, but the efficiency that he had that, he only took 6 shots to get 11 points, and he had 9 assists, which was by far a team high for both teams. So when you look at his facilitator prowess, when he pretty much just looks to get everybody involved while not shying away from open looks at the ripe age of 37 being a 6-foot guard, and then still taking like a lot of charges at the other end of the floor, which pretty much is his identity. You know, Kyle Lowry's a dog when it comes to being on the defensive side of the ball. He actually had three steals and a block as a six-foot guard, as a 37-year-old six-foot guard in that closeout game six against the New York Knicks. So honestly, I just wanted to pay some respects for my guy Kyle Lowry, and I really hope they end up uh, beating the... Uh, Boston Celtics, who had just, uh, as of a few minutes ago, punched their ticket for the Eastern Conference Finals, which is a perfect segue to get into this last series that I wanted to talk about, which is the Celtics versus the 76ers. Man, honestly, there's a lot to get into here. This was by far the most interesting second round matchup, which is a little bit hard to believe because I thought that was going to be the Lakers Warriors. However, that was simply not the case because this was by far the closest series when it comes to the entire second round. So we got game five. Um, Brown was pretty much the only Celtic with a good shooting game. He had 20, 24 points and um, off nine for 16 shooting. So he was fairly efficient at 56%. Whereas Jason Tatum was just busting up shots. He was 3 for 11 from 3. And he was about 11 for 27 from the field. So he, had, he did have his 36 points, but he took 27 shots to get there. So it wasn't efficient at all. And they actually ended up losing that game because you saw Vintage Maxi. You got Joel Embiid going for 33 points. So when the Philadelphia 76ers play like that, um, they're going to win, right? Because you had Maxi, which came a big bounce back game with his stat line. He was 50% from three. He made six threes. And they just pretty much outshot Boston, right? 
Um, Al Horford was scoreless that game, so he was 0 for 7 from 3, which was by far one of his worst performances because Al Horford is actually a sniper at the center position, so him going 0 for 7 was pretty much him handing the the Philadelphia 76ers the game. And um, yeah, that pretty much was how Game 5 went out. Um, Philadelphia just pretty much went into Boston and said, we're going to take this away from you. Um, And the Celtics came out relatively flat. However, everybody was uh, thought that they were going to win, right? But then you had Maxi and Embiid going for historical performances, which pretty much put the ball in Philadelphia's court. At this point in the playoff series, in this particular series, it was Philadelphia's series to lose because they were up. 3-2 going back home for a game six and this was by far in my opinion the biggest sell that any team has ever done like we can get into Doc Rivers game seven record being six and nine we can get into like how he sold the most playoff leads in the history of any other coach we can get into how he has the most Game 7s played as any other coach, but honestly, I'm going to say this on the record right now. If Boston, or sorry, if Philadelphia does not fire Doc Rivers, then they, like honestly, they're going to lose more than they just lost. Like, it's going to be a fatter L to them if they don't fire Doc Rivers because this was absolutely a coaching meltdown in my opinion. You had Boston, which is pretty much the team that's honestly favored to win the whole thing at this point. You had their two stars having horrible games. You had Jason Tatum literally shooting one for 14 to start the last quarter. His He was one for 14. You had no players that were over 20 points for the entire Boston Celtics, excluding Marcus Smart, who had the best game of his life pretty much. Heart and soul of the Boston team. I love the way he plays minus his his flopping. He had two big steals towards the end, and he also did that in Game 7. However, going back to Game 6, this was 100% Philadelphia's series and game to lose because they're super dependent on James Harden having a good game for them to break out, or Maxi and Joel Embiid. So if one of those two doesn't play well, you have to have the other playing well for them to win. And if you don't, then it's game over. It's wraps because they don't depend on anybody else except for those three to have a good game. And if they don't, it's pretty much a wrap. Like if you have the team that's favorite to win the entire NBA playoffs, you have their two stars and their biggest superstar in Jason Tatum shooting one for 14 and then him basically going into the fourth quarter the coldest he's ever been in his entire playoff and regular season career, then the entire Philadelphia 76ers squad failed to outscore that one man who had 16 points in the fourth quarter himself in the last four minutes when Philadelphia shot 0 for 8 from 3 and 5 for 20 from the field. You had Jason Tatum shooting 4 for 4 from 3, when he was, I think, 0 for 7, 0 for 8 before that. Like, Philadelphia sold the bag harder than any other sell I've ever seen in my whole life in the history of the NBA. Like, 
Honestly, we're praising Jason Tatum for shooting 5 for 21 because of his last four minutes because that's how Philadelphia played bad. That's how bad they were in the, in the fourth quarter. Like, you can't make this stuff up. Like, Marcus Smart was pretty much the best in the entire game, and his stat line was 22-7-7. That's how bad of a game it was for both teams. You had Philadelphia scoring 13 points as a whole team in the fourth quarter, and then Jason Tatum, who was 1-for-14 before that, outscoring them himself with 16 points. Like, if you're going to allow that to happen to you at home in a closeout game, when you haven't left the second round of the NBA um, like playoffs in basically since AI back in 2001, you don't deserve to get out of the second round. You don't deserve to represent uh, one of the last two teams in the Eastern Conference because that's simply like you pretty much did the hard work beforehand and all you had to do was literally probably make two out of the eight threes that you missed and then you would have punched yourself a ticket to the Eastern Conference Finals and knocked out the majority like favorite team to win the whole thing. But then you decide to basically hand over their franchise player a bunch of open looks to end the game. I know his first three wasn't really contested or was really contested. But after that, it was pretty much just an avalanche of him just going one on one or not even off a pick and roll, just off a regular pass. And they just didn't care. They just let him shoot. And they were so cold in that fourth quarter that their post-game interviews were like, oh yeah, we just missed shots and all that. But we're going to go into game seven because we beat them there twice already with the right mentality. And then little do we know, game seven that just ended about an hour ago, um, you got P.J. Tucker, which pretty much was the only reason it was a closed game in the first half because he had 11 first quarter points being guarded by Time Lord. But you also had Harden and Embiid playing extremely bad. They were both no-shows. Um, Embiid's final stat line was 5 for 18. You got Harden shooting 3 for 11. Like Honestly, it was just a blowout. As soon as the third quarter started, you got Jason Tatum having a historical performance which uh, pretty much edges out Steph Curry for the uh, most points ever in a playoff game seven with uh, Tatum scoring 51, beating Curry's 50 a few weeks ago. So honestly, as soon as that um, flagrant foul was called on the on Harden for losing the ball on the way up against Jalen Brown, that was when the game shifted. You got the Celtics going on a 7-0 run to end the second quarter to tie the game. And the Sixers, the only good thing that was happening for them was their seven blocks and their defense in the first half. But then after the second half started, the third quarter, uh, Tatum came out with a nuclear mission to accomplish. He finishes the game with 51, 13, and 5 off 60% shooting from the field and 60% from three. One of his best playoff performances by far. Um, you had them. You had uh, Boston going on a twenty-five to three run in the third quarter, and pretty much edging out their ticket to the Eastern Conference Finals. Their fifth in the last seven years, while holding Philadelphia scoreless in that third quarter for over six minutes straight. Philly could not buy a bucket, so that's why it's just super frustrating from not a Philadelphia fan but a Boston non-fan to see the team that wanted to edge themselves out for so long and having their MVP 
like just fuel them towards that game six potential win at home fumbling the bag that hard because you pretty much had them right where you wanted them you had the Boston Celtics best player shooting atrociously for that entire game you had his their second best player not trying to find his footing the only player that was doing well was Marcus Smart the heart and soul getting them those 50-50 balls which pretty much just made them stay in that entire game pretty much um giving him that license to win that NBA Hustle of the Award. He deserves it. However, um, from the Philadelphia 76ers perspective, man, honestly, you can't fumble a game that hard and expect to come out on the winning side because that's simply not how it works. You had them exactly where you wanted them in the fourth quarter, and then you decide to score 13 points as a team and make one person outscore you as an entire team instead of sending doubles or just trying to contain him because he was having about third quarters, you didn't realize that he just pretty much was going to keep shooting and was going to keep trying to will his team for a win because in his perspective, that was the entire season for him. If he didn't make those shots, he was going to live with that because he's their star. But you just pretty much let him have a bunch of open shots and didn't even try to contest him after the first corner three, which was super contested that he made. You just decided to watch him outscore you as a team and fumble the bag on your home court with a chance to punch a ticket to play the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference Finals. So honestly, um, the Sixers did it to themselves. They shot themselves in the foot. Um, if, you're, if you're a Philadelphia 76ers fan, I feel so sorry for you. Um, honestly, I think Doc Rivers has to go going into this offseason. Uh, there's a lot of rumors that James Harden's going to leave too, going back to Houston to form their own super team over there. So honestly, there's a lot of unknowns going into this offseason with Philly. However, I think they were horribly coached. Um, you got DeAnthony Melton, who was like 0 for 5 in game 6, staying on the court when it should have been George Yang, who was shooting the lights out that game. And you just did not have the right adjustments during the timeouts that were called such as doubling Tatum or just at least like having him shoot contested shots and not allowing the switches to be so easy because he was pretty much hunting Maxi on the offensive end because he's the smallest player and he's not known for his defense. So uh, yeah, horrible coaching job on Doc Rivers' part. And honestly, I think the Philadelphia 76ers did it to themselves. Again, if you're a Philly fan, I'm super sorry you had to witness that. That was pretty much the game being sold today at that time. Um, everyone knew going into this that uh, Boston was going to edge it out at home, and you got this superstar coming out with 51 points. Um, historic performance, um, but yeah, I don't think that's going to hold up. I think uh, to end this episode with a little bit of foreshadowing towards the rest of the playoffs, I think that we have really good matchups remaining with the underdog mentality with the Miami Heat versus the Boston Celtics versus the Lakers versus the Nuggets. So honestly, it's pretty cool because we have a bubble rematch from 2020, which kind of proves that the bubble wasn't a fluke. Uh, it's the best teams that ended up edging the other teams out to end up at the stage they're at right now. So we got two teams in the East and two teams in the West, simply four wins away from punching a ticket to the NBA Finals. Um, I think Boston's going to come out of the East. It's a lot easier to predict that series. I think it's probably going to be a six to seven game series. 
think Butler is going to give them a really hard time on the defensive end. Might even cause them a few injuries, unfortunately. I don't condone that or wish that upon my worst enemy. However, with the way the Heat plays, honestly, I think uh, somebody's going to go down in Boston because everyone's going to be trying to get those 50-50 balls. They're both really scrappy teams, so it's going to be a really uh, dirty matchup. You know, it's uh, like not in the bad way. It's just going to be like full of hustle plays and like trying to dive in for loose balls and just everybody's all over the place to try to like secure the possession and things along that nature. So I, I might foreshadow a few like... Um, you know, injuries happening there, even though I would not want that to happen. Given those two teams' the style of play, it would be a miracle if both of them ended it without, which is hopefully what uh, is going to happen. But uh, yeah, hot take. I'm foreshadowing a few injuries given how uh, hustle-filled those two teams are in terms of their play style. So I think Boston, even though the Heat's going to give them a run for their money, is going to come out with six, maybe seven games. And uh, they're going to represent the East in the in the finals once again. Uh, when it comes to the Denver versus the Lakers, honestly, it's a lot tougher to predict because they match up so well against each other. But I'm going to go with the first seed here, even though my heart's telling me to go with the Lakers. And LeBron, he's 39 almost, you know. Um, his supporting cast is good, but it's not as good as the Denver starting lineup. Like, you got five legit starters. Even uh, Brown on the Denver Nuggets is a legit starter, and he comes off the bench as their sixth man. Whereas in the Lakers' perspective, you have, uh, like, Dennis Schroeder or Austin Reeves. They are legit NBA starters. However, I think when you compare them with people like MPJ or Aaron Gordon, they're simply a lot better. Also, Denver's a lot bigger. Uh, I believe their smallest player is KCP at 6'4". So I honestly think that their front court just matches up a lot better with the Lakers' front court when it comes to Gordon guarding a 38-year-old LeBron and then MPJ guarding whoever else who um, they're going to throw on the Lakers perspective, but I think Jokic can pull AD out of the paint, which pretty much um, just kind of like removes a lot of his effectiveness, even though he's a good person in terms of like guarding uh, perimeter players and things along that nature. I think AD's at his best when he's in the paint and their ability to pull them out of the paint, given with the Jokic's just pedal to the metal like mission to prove mentality i think the denver nuggets are going to edge out the lakers in about six to seven games as well we're going to have both of these go down to the wire even though they're underdogs versus top seeds and uh, i think we're going to get a denver versus boston matchup even though a lakers versus boston matchup would be a lot better historically speaking uh, i think denver's going to win and they're going to represent the 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 Western Conference in the NBA Finals and honestly with this prediction it's going to be super hard to pick who comes out as the victorious champion however um, my brain is telling me the Celtics are going to do it but I'm going to go on the record and say that Denver is going to win their first ever NBA title because I think Jokic's drive and mentality and mindset will just edge out Boston's talent even though they're a more talented team I think Denver just has a lot more options to go to when it comes to their offense they're pretty much always scoring at will 
and their offensive talent is so fluid when it comes to them being displayed on that big of a stage. I think uh, Jokic will lead the Denver Nuggets to their first ever um, conference finals appearance, which they are in right now, and ultimately their first ever finals appearance and win, because that would honestly shut a lot of people up. We got a lot of Jokic hate and slander going towards their way simply for being a good player that chooses to play the right way. So um, I think Jokic is going to go out with something to prove. Same as Jamal Murray because a lot of people are calling his bubble performance a fluke. So I think they honestly match up really well against the Celtics and they're bigger than them as well. So um, yeah, you heard it here first. I think the Denver Nuggets are going to win in about six to seven games as well. Um, all the other matchups we have rests so far in the playoffs are going to be super close because of the talent remaining, even though the seeding might not show that. The sheer talent on each of these squads is simply too much to pass up. So I think all of the series remaining are going to be at least six game series. Uh, going into the finals and uh, yeah I think uh, with Denver's home court advantage and their offensive fluidity and talent I think they're going to edge out the Boston Celtics in the finals and uh, yeah that's pretty much all we wanted to cover today uh, please leave us a five-star rating and a review especially if you've reached the end of the episode um, it's been your host Fuad and I cannot wait to cover the Western and Eastern Conference Finals series as they're going and eventually the NBA Finals going into the offseason with the NBA Draft and a lot of rumors towards the teams coming up for the next NBA season. It's been your host Fawad once again and I'm out. Peace. Peace.